Fifty years ago, this past Christmas Eve, earlier this week, 50 years ago, Apollo 8 circled the moon and took a series of awe-inspiring images, one of which is on the front of your bulletin today. Apollo 8's astronauts expressed their amazement at the natural beauty of the planet Earth floating in space by reading the biblical story of creation. Uttered a day before Christianity's most holy worship, the words from Genesis 1 dramatized the uniqueness and solitude of living nature, God's vitality seen against the encompassing blackness of space. Both the religious and the non-religious watching on television were moved to reflect on our fragility, placement, and dependence on this blue ball of earth. In the history of Western religion, however, earth and nature have been more commonly subordinated to the centrality of the drama between humanity and its God. The Bible presumes a sharp dichotomy between redemption and creation, and therefore nature in the Old Testament and the historical church is not only separated from human culture, but is regarded as subservient to it. This decentering by biblical religion of the world of nature became the organizing environmental ideology of the European church age. Human existence came to be justified solely in the marketplace, situating a breakneck pursuit of accelerating material growth exploited through fossil fuel combustion as the source of economic power. Fossil fuels and their unsustainable use have given rise to catastrophic problems of global warming and climate injustice. The extractive economy of fossil fuels and their combustion exemplifies humanity's broken relations with nature and neighbor. Nature is obscured when refabricated into showy baubles and what I call the moral gout of consumerism. With Christianity's ideology of separation of humanity from nature, alienation sets in. Alienation is humankind's greatest psychological hang-up. Alienation from God, alienation from nature, alienation from neighbor, alienation from self. Because of this alienation, humankind struggles with unbearable feelings of insecurity and insufficiency. And this struggle leads Americans especially to overburden nature with vast demand for consumption and stockpiling commodities. The byproduct ashes of humanity's economic processes and the unjust distribution of combustion emissions in the common atmosphere has brought the whole creation to groaning 
as Paul writes in Romans. We know the staggering dimensions of this alienation. Our fossil-fueled lives burn rapid and hot in almost complete experiential detachment from the rest of the Earth's natural biosphere. We, humanity, are losing track of nature in our obsessions with ever-thickening layers of technology, video screens, virtuality, robotics, Hollywood portrayals of space colonization, unhindered transportation, economic perpetual motion machines. All these diversions require ever more combustion of carbon compounds to power our escapist diversions from the reality of ecological limits. As global society continues its descent into climate change, the church is tasked with discerning God's will with regards to an appropriate relationship with nature and with the victims of climate injustice. Psalm 148, which I just read, pictures harmonious worship of all creatures. And it's not the only psalm that does that. In psalms like these, creation, I image creation as a circle with hands joined, not a ladder nor a pinnacle to climb. Our human station is as God's trustees inside the natural world, not at its apex. Trusteeship, which I believe better conveys the biblical idea of Radah in Genesis 1.28, traditionally translated as dominion, trusteeship incorporates ideas found in Jesus' parables, creation care in Genesis 2, and a mutual relationship between God and humanity that requires human faith-keeping for the sake of the poor and the unborn. Trusteeship is human faith's responsibility to keep God's faith in us as we abide in nature and take only a justifiable portion of its fruits, sharing with the poor and with other species nature's productive base. I believe Christian society is grossly failing in its trusteeship designation from God inside our natural household. And the most apparent husks of nature being abused and overextracted are the depletion and dirtying of water and air, the primary bases of life. In stark contrast to creation's trustees bringing in the kingdom of God, fracking is the brutal epitome of the gushing forth of the kingdom of oil. Fracking pulverizes landforms containing petroleum and natural gas, often bound in shale, injecting large amounts of water at high pressure to separate the methane and oil from the fractured rubble, then sequestering the now poisonous water runoff underground or in surface ditches. Hilda Koster, 
links the impetus for this violence against nature to the epidemic of sex trafficking and rape that is engaged by the fracking field workers of North Dakota. A deformed human agency intended by God for loving relationships pervertedly carries off Native American young women into sexual servitude in North Dakota. And correspondingly, the human soul's agency intended by God for trusteeship of nature is deformed by the mania of ruinous extraction and destruction of natural landforms by fracking, leaving behind a desert of poisoned aquifers, sooty air, methane emissions, and compacted and nutrient-depleted soils. In the North Dakota oil patch, as elsewhere in the extractive economy, these deformations of moral agency violate the image of God in vulnerable women and the image of God in nature's life-sustaining features. These violations are linked. These violations of sexual and ecological integrity are human sinfulness run amok, a geography of violence, a domination feedback loop that raises social temperature and global temper, and the fossil fuel industries, environmental and social pathologies exemplify what our reading from 1 Samuel categorizes as the sin against God. Now, I believe the primary sin against God is what we in the church have traditionally called idolatry. And I not only invite you, but urge you to meditate on the Ten Commandments, the first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 3, against idolatry, but less preached is the long list of curses for human misbehavior in Deuteronomy 27. And the first curse, the protological curse that God invokes on humanity is the sin and the curse against idolatry. That's Deuteronomy 27.15. In both passages, Exodus and Deuteronomy, the avoidance of idolatry is framed as the foundational human duty toward God. Idolatry is the fundamental human disloyalty against God. One of the idols, one of the demons, one of the primary idols uh, who were the enemies of the Israelites in ancient times was the Canaanite idol Moloch. Uh, the Canaanites sacrificed children by fire to Moloch. And this past December 27th, the church commemorates the feast of the slaughter of the innocents, recalling Herod's evil decree, putting children to death in his lust to retain power. Herod, I believe, was under the sway of this demon idol Moloch. And a contemporary slaughter of innocents is ongoing with global warming. 60% of all animals, reptiles, fishes, and birds, 60% have gone extinct since 1970. While children, the innocent children, are uniquely at risk to the direct impacts of climate change, 
and climate-related disasters. They are exposed, children are exposed to increased risk of injury, death, disease, separation from caregivers. And I believe it is appalling that entrenched economic interests are so under the sway of the idle Moloch that they stand unmoved by the carnage of children. The Moloch of oil robs opportunities for environmental flourishing from the young and the unborn and other species. Recently, the Union of Concerned Scientists have petitioned the church to begin to lead on the issue of climate injustice. As some of you know, I am developing church practices for a community of marine congregations to reduce their carbon emissions and take more of a leadership role in resisting climate change and injustice. I feel deeply the urgency for the planet, for my children, and for all children, for all generations. In the 1990s, I worked to develop an alternative form of economics called ecological economics, which was designed to take into account the material limits that nature imposes on the human production process. Most economics don't, don't uh, take that into account except through the pricing mechanism. In 2008, I audited this church's carbon footprint and I led uh, a church in San Francisco to become carbon neutral, which may have been the first church in San Francisco to, to measure its footprint and become carbon neutral. And I also led a carbon audit of San Francisco Theological Seminary that year, and it may have been the first seminary to have measured its carbon footprint. So I've been studying the intersection of carbon emissions and theology and church practice on and off for the last 10 years. And I strongly believe the church needs to step up to lead resistance to this ecological crisis. So what are we to do in this existential urgency that we feel to get off of fossil fuels? I think first, without waiting for others and society to act, we must stimulate our own individual lifestyle changes that reduce hydrocarbon combustion and promote more focused human trusteeship of nature. Trusteeship situated inside the ethic of the golden rule subordinates our self-interest to the rights and viability and flourishing of others. So trusteeship is not a hierarchical concept. It's actually a subordinating concept. It's a, hu it's a humbling experience. Second, I believe we must name the combustion-powered extractive economy as a human-fabricated idol and frame it as an evil. It is the primary example ongoing of the broken human relationship of humanity between humanity and God and God's creation. And third, we must transition from subordinating nature to human economic interests to instead affirm and value all natural creatures as bearers of God's love and agents of God's praise, as we read in Psalm 148. Nature species have a right to flourish 
beyond their use to humankind. And we in the church, another, another way we can act in this crisis, we can witness to our decarbonizing lifestyles and our carbon thrift. Lifestyle witnessing has been shown to be effective in persuading others to mirror us. So without being self-righteous, we can testify to our neighbors and our friends and our acquaintances our own personal lifestyle changes that we've undertaken to reduce our carbon footprints. And to that end, I recently audited my own 2018 carbon footprint and discovered that nearly one half of neutralizing that footprint could be, established, could be accomplished by my personal lifestyle changes. A quarter of the footprint could be neutralized if society got its act together and realized the 80% gains in efficiency that current technologies in the energy grid can bring about. And the other quarter, through the purchase of, of, of effective and legitimate carbon offsets. So that my lifestyle choice can actually accomplish twice the amount of carbon reduction than waiting for society to get its act together. My New Year's resolutions this upcoming year are to increase my carbon thrift and to share with others what I believe is a gospel witness of trusteeship inside God's created natural commonwealth. I've reduced my laundering by half. I've reduced my weekly duration in hot showers by 60%. Previously, I halved my jet travel, and I've been cutting down on beef, and in 2019, I will increase those efforts. I will cut my purchases of technology and material goods in 2019. I will relocalize, buying more locally produced foods, relocalizing cuts embedded in supply chain and transportation energy inputs dramatically. While many have already divested investments from fossil fuel corporations and assets. We're trying to get the Presbyterian um, pensioner, pension program to divest from fossil fuels. We haven't done it yet, but we're working on it. Many of us have done that. But index funds as an alternative also can contain uh, dirty corporations. So one other thing that we might consider to do in 2019 is reinvest in fossil fuel-free capital funds. Neither personal lifestyle change, both personal lifestyle change and social action are necessary, but neither is sufficient alone. It's both and. And I'm going to preach again in June on more collective and political ways we can act, but today I'm focusing on lifestyle changes. It's important to note Pastorally, I believe that catastrophic climate change and global warming will worsen faster and more furious in the next 30 years, even if nations immediately implement the Paris Accords on greenhouse gas emissions. We can stop climate temperature growth at under 2 degrees if we act now, 
but further adverse global and local catastrophes are baked into the momentum of the greenhouse effect, even in this best case. So I have two recommendations for dealing with the coming bad news, and it's going to get worse. First, hope, like thrift, is a virtue, and as such must be consciously cultivated so that we can keep active and diligent, combating despair for which our grandchildren and our children have no use. To cultivate hope, make a regular inventory of your thankfulness and blessings, count off your appreciations of natural beauty and ecological harmonies, and develop an increasing loyalty to our earthly home. Second, feel yourself connected to the massed global awakening and social movements on this issue of combating climate injustice. You're not alone. If you try to face global warming stoically and alone, you will be overwhelmed by the accruing news of catastrophes. So cultivate the virtues of hope, thrift, loyalty to place, and social connection as you fight the good fight, the good fight against climate injustice. And for strength, guidance, and atmospheric healing, pray to the Holy Spirit because ancient Israel conceived the Holy Spirit to inhabit the atmosphere above the churning waters at creation. Solidarity with the Holy Spirit fosters life and justice. It stands with the vulnerable, poor, and oppressed. And it stands inside the wind-forming home of the Spirit, the air from God, what the Hebrews called the Ruach. Fellowship with the Holy Spirit includes fellowship with the atmosphere, its balances, health-giving integrity, and life-sustaining foundation. These are nature's salvation processes, its saving and sustaining functions, and the earth's atmosphere, like the Holy Spirit, permeates God's very good creation of our home. When we develop the appropriate individual virtues and practices, the holy whirling air known to the ancient Israelites as Ruach will howl politically to blow open the closed-looped discourse that human society is engaging over the issue of climate injustice. Our economic ash heaps and airless discourse need the fresh and dazzling sunlight cascading through God's Holy Spirit atmosphere. Out here on the edge of our galaxy, in the dark, on the far edge of the airless vacuum of space, our home is a radiant miracle. A tree-filled landscape and shimmering blue waters powered by the sun. Here, the Creator's beauty and wisdom and logic is filamented through the vapor of clouds and air, which sustain every cell, membrane and muscle, every fruit, stem and feather. 
And let our worship of God ring out in our praise of the Holy Spirit's infusion of nature and its atmospheric cycles and balances that God gives for life. And while we're at it, let us praise the reverent silence of animals that adds its witness to our prayers. Let our adoration prepare us with the skills and strength to fiercely resist and change entrenched systems of injustice. And may that be for so for you and me. Amen.